0: welcome to the bloomberg markets podcast i'm paul sweeney alongside my co-host matt miller every business day we bring you interviews from ceos market pros and bloomberg experts along with essential market moving news find the bloomberg markets podcast on apple podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at bloomberg.com slash podcast well we had american airlines report numbers today smaller than expected loss Uh, cautiously optimistic about a continued recovery, uh, particularly in domestic. That's a little bit better than what we heard from Delta Airlines and United, who I think offered maybe a little bit more caution here about the rebound in the airline business. Let's Dig a little bit deeper in the airline business. We welcome Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of U.S. Global Investors. Uh, Frank, I know you have a lot of experience with uh, all things aviation, aeronautics. You've got your uh, ETF, J-E-T-S ETF, so a lot of experience there. Frank, what are you taking away here from what we've heard from some of the big U.S. uh, airlines?
1: Well, talking to you in New York is the Jets ETF. It's not the Jets football team. That's right. (laughs) And uh, I I think the big part is what happened last year in March. The TSA started publishing daily, and you get it on Bloomberg as a nice functionality, of how many people the TSA clear. And prior to COVID, it was 2.7 million people a day. Two million people a day were just domestic travel. 700,000 were inbound from Europe, Asia, and Latin America. That number fell down to in April, mid-April of last year, down to less than 90,000 people a day. Now, what we've seen is a huge surge uh, over a million three, million 4, four a day now flying. And and as that daily publish, the longer it stays up at that number, the faster the airlines can get to break even. Uh, the business traveler is not going to come back in, in great numbers until, the, until most of the population is vaccinated. So, the, the triangulation, if you want to take a look at it, is what is the penetration of the of, of population being vaccinated? It creates confidence for travel. The first big movement has been tourists can wait. Uh, the airlines have reinvented it where they fly to, like San Antonio to Miami, and I'm based in San Antonio, used to be nonstop every morning American Airlines. It's not doing it, Southwest to Fort Lauderdale. You're seeing all this reconfiguration of taking people uh, from north to south, and the airlines have been able to move people for tourism. The business traveler is going to wait. It's probably I think is until about sixty percent to seventy percent of the people have had their second needle uh for the vaccine process right that conference will then see
2: it i mean i love that you brought up the business travel correct me if i'm wrong but we think that the business travel is a higher profitable better margin traveler than the leisure traveler going on vacation what does that mean then for the composition of the margin mix of the profitability for these airlines as they're looking to get back to being profitable
1: uh, it explodes. You know, it's, it's massive. And, and the other big part, the, the, the real big win will be Europe. When Europe finally gets its act together and getting more people vaccinated and travel opens up over there, because Jets is a, is a global airlines index um, that recalibrates every quarter uh, and picking those with the strongest financial stocks. So I, I think the, the big opportunities will be business travel as more people vaccinate here and Europe opens up this summer. Uh, this will, this will fast track the profitability of the airlines from both business travel and international travel the tickets are much more profitable and across the pond uh, travel
0: frank is there is there still a risk for some of these carriers here um you know they they, they really can't have sustained profitability without um, their international travel without their business travel and Again, we're seeing some pandemic numbers, most notably today out of India, that are just really going the wrong way. Um, is there still that cloud hanging over whether these companies can survive, particularly those with you know, uh, more leveraged balance sheets?
1: Well, it's, it's a great question, but I think what we've seen is the capital markets have been so fluid uh, in, in, in raising capital. It's been inexpensive, and there's new mechanisms from uh, an at-the-market mechanism, ATM they call it, uh, ability to raise capital. Uh, We've seen price discovery explode in the past year with all the Robinhood investors coming in, and and that liquidity attracts uh, other bigger fund managers and institutions. So I think the system is awash with capital, uh, and I don't think it'll – it's – easy to see how fast SPACs are exploding. Uh, and, and the capital markets are, are, to me, very exciting for investors. And I think we're going to continue to see more capital formation by these airlines, be able to cap those capital markets.
2: Curveball here. We're going to go from jets into Bitcoin. What the yeah. heck are your clients <laughs> asking you about Bitcoin and the shakeout below 55,000?
1: Well, you know, I, I launched the first public company to mine cryptocurrencies. It's called High Blockchain Technology, and uh, it, it, it mines Ethereum and Bitcoin. Uh, I, I think that the, the Bitcoin is going through a, uh, it's, its sort of normal big correction. Uh, I think it's temporary. You're seeing more and more adoption. PayPal, Venmo, uh, people can go on and buy a fraction of Bitcoin. They don't have to worry about $55,000 spending. They can buy $500 or $1,000. Uh, and, and, and as you get more and more people adopting to this, now 35 million going to 40 million, they call wallets, uh, and you have a limited supply, Metcalf's law suggests it goes to 100,000. So I've always advocated a, 10, a 2% weighting in that asset class as an alternative asset class. You can do it through the crypto mining companies or you can do it directly. Uh, You can't buy stocks on your Venmo account, and you can't buy on PayPal, but you can buy Bitcoin, and and that is a very important Mm. long-term adoption.
2: Frank Holmes, CEO, Chief Investment Officer for U.S. Global Investors. Thank you so much for joining us today. Getting the report, Paul, on Jets, airlines and Bitcoin as Coinbase. It eyes a 300 level at a 306.
0: Yeah, I know. It's, it's interesting. The volatility in Bitcoin, which is a big driver of Coinbase, uh, is with us. And as Frank was suggesting, maybe that's just a, a regular form of a correction in that currency. So we'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. All right, we got the leading economic indicator data point for the month of March came in at uh, where did it come in at uh, 1.3 uh, percent? Uh, you know, better than the 1 percent look. So we had the the actual economic indicator increased 1.3 percent, came in at 111.6. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That follows a one zero point one percent 0.1 percent decrease in February. So pretty strong numbers coming out of the month of month of March for the U.S. economy. Let's dig down a little bit deeper. We will do that with Adaman Ozeldrim, Senior Director, Economics and Global Research Chair at the Conference Board. So Adaman, thanks so much for joining us once again. Pretty good numbers in March. Is that just kind of a catch up from what was a, a tough winter uh, month in February?
3: Uh, good morning, Paul. Great to be here. Uh, yeah, the uh, le- leading indicators uh, had quite a positive uh, report this morning. Um, if February was slightly uh, negative, uh, revised down uh, a little bit. So uh, it was a rough uh, sort of winter months uh, in the beginning of the year. Uh, so part of this is catch up, but it it really is also the continuation of the positive uh, momentum that the uh, leading index uh, had been uh, building uh, since, you know, say the middle of last year, you know, with the reopening of the economy. Um, And uh, more uh, good news is kind of uh, feeding into the economy uh, and the leading indicators uh, looking ahead now.
2: I think what really stood out to me is that all 10 components are contributing positively. Mm -hmm. What are those 10 components? What are you seeing that is really leading this recovery?
3: Uh, yes, so that is very good news uh, indeed. So all 10 components uh, are contributing positively. There are really kind of five areas uh, that are grouped together in this leading index. Uh, and uh, so those are, you know, labor markets, uh, manufacturing, uh, consumers outlook, construction, and financial indicators. And all areas are flashing very positive um, so you uh, in the program you mentioned the unemployment insurance claims that is one of the components uh and it is continuing to drop uh and feeding into those positive contributions. So, good sign from labor markets, and uh, that really is kind of the beginning of a virtuous uh, cycle uh, that uh, feeds on itself, right? And that's uh, manufacturing orders are uh, rising, uh, supply managers are very positive about the outlook, uh, consumers' outlook has also become uh, much more positive about uh, the expectations, uh, and uh, we would expect that to translate into more spending. Uh, housing permits uh, are increasing after the bad winter months uh, there 's a pickup there um, and financial indicators uh, are also feeding positively in the into the leading index
0: Ottoman, you know it 's kind of a weird paradox in the labor market you know it's We still have so many people unemployed much higher than we would like uh, certainly economists would like. Yet what we hear from employers across the board is they 're having a very difficult time filling positions, particularly on the lower end. And they often cite the fact that it's tough to compete against some of the government fiscal stimulus in terms of um, uh, uh, enhanced unemployment how is that factoring into the economy is that a risk at all to kind of the, the reopening of this economy
3: uh, so it, it, it is one of the potential risks uh, as the economy uh, kind of builds more momentum uh there is uh there ha- has been a lot of labor market disruption and uh you know it 's not just in the macro top level numbers uh but when you look at the detail of the different sectors that laid off workers uh there's a lot of uh variety across different sectors uh you know some uh continued along uh and uh, some really uh shed a lot of workers which they're now trying to you know hire back. Uh, and that sort of uh, kind of uh, perpetuates the disruptions uh, that we 've been seeing, and that could uh, the difficulty of finding and hiring workers could lead to you know wage pressures uh, in different sectors differentially and uh, create even more disruptions uh, in, in a way kind of trying to move workers from one sector to another is not that easy, and yep. you 'd have to pay them even higher and Uh, and that difficulty in hiring could uh, continue and um, you know my colleagues at the conference board uh, have already started talking about uh, labor shortages you know coming back Uh, this is not uh, something that we saw over the last year and they may indeed you know come back uh, earlier than uh, we might have expected
0: yeah it's a really interesting dynamic to what is an improving labor market Adaman Oseldrom thank you so much for joining us Adaman is the director of economic research and global research chair uh, at the conference board again the March leading economic indicator came in with a growth rate of 1.3% the consensus was 1% so better than expected and as Ottoman was mentioning kind of across the board improvements so a little bit of catch up from the weak winter mm-hmm. months but certainly a strong number <music> You know, Taylor, back in the day I used to work at Credit Suisse, or what was then known as Credit Suisse mm. First Boston, so I tend to follow the, the company and for news flow to see what's the latest there, and my boy, they've been Yikes. in the news, but for all the wrong reasons. Let's get the latest uh, on Credit Suisse. We go to our Ace uh, Bank's analyst from Bloomberg Intelligence. That would be Allison Williams. Uh, she's been with Bloomberg Intelligence covering the banks since the beginning of Bloomberg Intelligence about 12 years ago. Before that, she was at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, uh, investing in a lot of these big banks. Allison, thanks so much for joining us here. Boy, it just seems like Credit Suisse just goes from minefield to minefield, and they just step on these mines all the time. Give us the latest on what's going on there and how they're trying to kind of get past it, I guess.
4: I think that the latest today um a couple key things. First of all, um they did a convertible offering raising 2 billion of capital. I think that's I think that's a, a good step towards risk management, right? Because even though they had the capital to absorb the loss, I think this will help to steady the ship. It'll stop um, questions swirling around the positions, especially since we know that there's another um, Archegos charge-related coming in next quarter. We know that there's probably a regulatory and, and legal fallout to come. Um, so granted, it is uh, dilutive to shareholders, but um, but I think that um, it It's smart from a risk management perspective. And then much of the other changes are exactly what you'd expect. They're going to be pulling back within the prime brokerage unit, um, cutting that business by about a third. They're going to be um, pulling, which will result in, you know, paring down of the investment bank balance sheet um, by about 10%. Um, There's obviously been uh, changes in management for the prime brokerage unit. The investment bank had the chief risk officer again. Um, These are all things you'd expect. Mm -hmm. They continue to do a review, um, and they continue to make progress um, in the asset management business related to some of the green issues. You
2: know, Allison, big picture. It's interesting, the timing. I'm in a class right now called Managing Financial Risk. We're learning how to calculate VAR and expected shortfall. Where were the VAR, where were the risk parameters of Credit Suisse that allowed this to happen?
4: So um, I think the most important lesson on VAR, which hopefully you're also learning, is that it's a flawed measure and it's backwards looking. Mm. So VAR is going to look, you know, um, pretty ugly for credit suites going forward. Although the interesting thing is that, you know, they this, this generally would be considered a contra revenue item, because, of, but because of the size of the item, um, they booked it as a charge and, and as a provision. So outside of their unit, you know, in contrast to Morgan Stanley that absorbed it. Um, within their revenue. Um, you know, this, the second part of it is, you know, tier point risk management. And, and in these divisions, you know, there's, there's generally all different types of tools, by product, by client, by size of the exposure. And I think it's the size of the exposure versus the size of the unit um, that that really um, was outsized, <laughs> because if you think about, you know, Credit Suisse probably makes about a billion dollars a year for the last couple of years from prime brokerage. That's our estimate. They had a five billion dollar um, loss on this client. Uh, you know, Morgan Stanley, um, you know, is 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 probably at least double that. They've made forty billion over the last ten years, and they had a, a one billion dollar loss. And and they're they're much bigger in the business than, than Credit Suisse, so it signals that perhaps you know that this bank was taking outsized risk. The question is, you know, were they were they taking outsized risks in terms of the you know the just the exposure to this client, just trying to get bigger in the business. And then obviously, there's, um, as I'm sure you know, and has been um, well discussed, there were specific issues of family office, the lack of transparency, e- yep. et cetera, um, that were sort of unique to the situation.
0: Hey, Allison, you know, again, I, you know, I've got a lot of history with this firm, and, and it just seems like there's there's always some big, big control issues, some big, bad trades, big, bad investments, charges all over the place. When did, when does the board get held responsible? I mean, blowing out your investment banking chief and your chief risk officer, okay, I get it, but it, when does the board take some responsibility here? Because it just seems systematic almost to this firm.
4: Well, I, you know, w- one of the reasons why Credit Suisse was able to offset this loss was reduction in, in compensation. And, you, you know, one of the things that the bank did um, when they um, had sort of flagged the initial or, or when I guess they first sized the, the 4.4 billion franc, 4.7 billion charge um, turned out to be more, but they you know went back and adjusted um, you know executive compensation um, for the years prior, and that's, and that's something also that that's I guess relatively new to the industry, but you know clawing back um, compensation when, when things like this happen.
0: Yeah, interesting, just uh, extraordinary to watch this happen. And again, that $2 billion convert uh, offering perhaps will strengthen up that balance sheet. Allison Williams, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your perspective on these uh, big global uh, investment banks. Allison leads our bank's coverage for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, the research arm of Bloomberg. And boy, uh, Taylor just seems uh, they can't get out of their own way sometimes. I just
2: need her to do my VAR homework, Paul. That's That's the only thing I need.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she's had a lot of experience, again, you know, investing in these banks. She knows all the management teams. She knows all the strategies. Uh, She knows where all the bodies Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are buried. And when you're looking at Credit Suisse, again, just mm. so many things uh, to be wary of if you are investing in that company. But we'll have to see how it plays out. This is Bloomberg. Time for Bloomberg Opinion. Today we have Carl Smith. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He's got a fascinating column here entitled Repealing Salt Cap would be wrong move for Democrats. And as someone who lives in the metro New York area, one of those high tax areas, that cap on the state and local taxes really hit home when you file the taxes. And uh, it's not just the metro New York area, it's other high tax areas Uh, Taylor, where that was a big issue.
2: Paul, it's the only thing municipal bond investors care about right now. That's the only reason we're doing this story. They knew I was going to be on radio. They pushed (laughs) Matt Miller out. No one in Berlin even knows what this is. Municipal bond investors only care about the SALT repeal if it gets uh, repealed or not, that cap deduction, Paul. I
0: know. It's big. It's big. It's something I bring up all the time. Carl, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd like to see the SALT cap repealed. Why should Democrats not pursue that?
5: Well so uh, it's understandable why a lot of people in you know Metro New York and California high cost areas um, took a big bite on that but if we look at sort of the economics of the repeal um, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty regressive so I okay. think there's been some analysis that like on net it's more regressive than the tax cuts and jobs acts were that is more of the benefits from the salt cap repeal would go to um, top five percent of earners top one percent of earners then Went to that group during the TCGA altogether, so it's it's unusual for Democrats, and then it's a little bit more skewed towards um, higher earners than even sort of Republican tax policy. Um, so that's why I think it's kind of a kind of a bad fit for you know where Democrats at least say their priorities are. Um, it also does take revenue, and we're in a we're in a place now where. You know, the government spent a lot of money, much of that was borrowed. Um, the president, Joe Biden, has indicated that he doesn't want to continue that, that he wants to fund most of the new initiatives. And so that's gonna take revenue. So if he wants to do the big things on infrastructure, that's gonna take revenue. Salt cap sort of takes away from that. That means few of those things can be done. And so it's kind of a policy that just doesn't fit with where the Democrats wanna go and what they say their priorities are. I also think that it's it's not really popular with um, a lot of Republicans either. So it's kind of a loser on that side as well.
2: Yeah, Carl, I love that you bring up the fight between Democrats and Republicans, but then really, and maybe more importantly, the fight within the Democratic Party. I mean, you think of the AOCs who say, no way, this is a loophole for mm-hmm. the rich. And then you have maybe more moderates. You're thinking of Chuck Schumer saying, we really need this to be included, this repeal, if we're going to get through this broader tax plan. What are the conversations within the Democratic Party about how they're going to get this done or not? Is this all just cultural politics?
5: Yeah, so I think that one of the, one of the things that's made this really complicated is that um, during TCJA, uh, Republicans were looking for ways to fund the corporate tax cut. Uh, and something that uh, economists really have pushed for a long time is capping or get rid of, getting rid of the state and local tax deduction. Um, we think that it's... It, basically subsidizes uh, states that have high levels of taxation, and there's no particular reason to do that or increase in efficiency. But anyway, so the Republicans went towards that, but they had this problem in that it's a tax increase. So how do they justify this tax increase? And um, some some of the President Trump's allies got on the idea that we'll call it the blue state tax increase. We'll emphasize that only like blue states are going to pay, and in particular, they didn't get rid of the whole thing. They only capped it at 10 because that would sort of like maximize the damage to blue states while leaving some wealthy people in a red states still able to deduct under that limit. <clears throat>
0: so yeah, that so I- a
5: really big cultural issue. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Carl, yeah. so that, uh, that kind of goes to where I wanted to go. You know, A lot of folks that are uh, supporting the repealing the salt cap said, hey, this was just a political uh, dig by President Trump against uh, those areas of the country that did not support him in the election. It had nothing to do with fair taxation or economics. It was simply all political. As a result, it deserves to be repealed. So it's become kind of, I guess, more of a political issue than an economic issue, if anything else. Is that how it's being played out in Washington?
5: Uh, That is a big part of it. And I mean, I think that's what's making that's what's making the split among Democrats harder. I mean, um, I think among even sort of Republican wonks and Democratic wonks are kind of like both against uh, the salt deduction. But when Trump's people came out and made it a cultural issue, that made it hard for Democrats to be in favor of capping salt, especially Democrats whose own constituents were going to get hit by. And so, you know, it's it's a live issue now precisely because Trump made it a cultural
0: issue.
2: Carl, I'm throwing you a curveball here, but we know you're smart enough to handle it. I've been studying a lot of the state and local government budgets. I think of New York, which after those tax increases, you're looking at 55% tax rate on some of the top earners, higher than California. And a lot of those budget assumptions, I think Cuomo's, assumes that the SALT repeal indeed will go through are we getting into trouble when we're building budgets on a state level that's based on something that's going to happen at the federal level that, well, we're not quite sure that that's even going to happen.
5: Right. And I mean, I mean, I mean, so obviously that's not wise. I mean, we're not wise from a budgetary standpoint. Um, it puts more pressure on representatives from New York since he's already said, well, look, you know, we're committed to this. We've already committed this. We're expecting you to come through. And so it makes sense as a political move. But obviously, um, You know, it's a poor budgetary move and only makes things riskier for the state uh, going forward, because uh, I don't think that the salt cap is probably going to get repealed. So, um, I mean, it'll be a big fight, but I don't think ultimately uh, it will be repealed.
0: What's the sense of uh, timing here, Carl, about, you know, when we're going to get some resolution here?
5: You know, I'm, I, I'm not clear on that because, uh, you know, so far the president has said that he's, he's not particularly interested in doing it. I know that's the position of the economists at the White House. Um, but Schumer seems to be digging in on it. Uh, Pelosi seems to be digging in on it. And so um, it's really like a live ball, right? I mean, I, I would expect, given the way things are, that the president will ultimately get his way on this if he, if he sticks to what his economists are telling him. But um, because it has so much support among the Democratic leadership, uh, it's hard to say when things will really, like, um, be resolved.
0: All right, Carl. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Carl Smith uh, from Bloomberg Opinion. You can, reach all, you can read all of Carl's work and that of our good folks at Bloomberg mm-hmm. Opinion at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Lots of great work there as you well know, as Paul, on the I terminal. I love these
2: debates. In the afternoon when I'm on TV, we debate about if there's inflation or not. I think right. there is. Romaine thinks that there's no inflation. I'm going to now start debating you on salt. Is it yeah. a tax loophole? Is it not? I love it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. But it's it's certainly hit folks in the metro New York area, I think, mm-hmm. pretty hard. Um, and, um, you know, it's one of the incentives for living in this part of the country is you can you get some tax relief on your state and local taxes, which can be very high in mm-hmm. certain uh, you know jurisdictions around the country. And it, I guess what made it even worse is that it was just a political uh, game there, political football, and, and, and you know a lot of folks ended up paying the price just based upon uh, where they live. But we'll certainly have more on that. That'll be certainly a story that Bloomberg News will be following uh, going forward. So we'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer.